You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No one. Everyone. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, another week has come to an end. It's a million degrees in Los Angeles again. So I'm back to recording in the middle of the night, so I don't wish death upon myself while recording without the air conditioner on. Anyway, this week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got The Green Knight and The Night House. First, The Green Knight, which is the kind of pretentious crap that critics love, but regular moviegoers hate. It's literally the broccoli of movies. It probably makes you smarter, but it's definitely not as satisfying as a brownie equivalent movie like, I don't know, like a superhero movie. My recommendation would be if you partake and if it's legal where you are, take an edible beforehand. Pretty sure that would have made this movie so much better. It's just it's so pretentious. And then next is The Night House. Again, this is definitely more of a critic darling than a movie for a casual moviegoer. But unlike The Green Knight, I'd willingly watch this again. The film has very well-developed characters and a satisfying twist that I didn't see coming. And I always see the twist coming. So I liked that I actually got tricked because that's very hard to do. So Night House, yay. Green Knight. Anyway, on to the topic for this week. This week, we're wrapping up the first On the Road series with the history of South Korean cinema, the film industry that made the first non-English speaking film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Today, we're starting from when the industry was in its infancy under one Korea, what happened to the industry after the northern and southern parts of the country were split in half, and then we go all the way up to the modern day. You guys, you've been here for a minute. You know the drill. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. In order to give you the history of South Korean cinema, we have to go all the way back to a time when there was just one. There isn't a solid source stating when exactly cinema made it to Korea, but we do know that the art form was introduced there around the same time as the other countries we've talked about this month, somewhere between 1896 and 1898. The first footage ever shot in the country of Korea was done by an American lecturer turned filmmaker named Burton Holmes whom would popularize the travelogue genre. In addition to displaying his films abroad, he also showed them to the Korean royal family in 1898. 
The first movie theaters in Korea began popping up in 1903, several years before the country even had its own film industry. Instead, screens showed primarily American and European imports. From 1909 to 1920, a series of theaters were built in Seoul and in more regional cities like Busan and Pyongyang. Most of these theaters were owned by Japanese businessmen, but a few Korean theater owners managed to build clientele as well. Like many of the movie moguls in the West, the first Korean film producer came out of cinema ownership. Bok Sung-pil financed the first Korean-made film, The Righteous Revenge, which was a short, hybrid, theater-film kinodrama. He also produced the first Korean documentary film, Scenes of Gyeongsong City. Both premiered at his theater on October 27, 1919. Like trying to determine when the first film was screened in Korea, it is also not certain what the first feature film was. There's literally like five that they argue about, so we're not totally sure what that is. What we do know is that starting in 1926, Korea entered its first golden age of cinema, its silent golden age. Korean film studios at this time were Japanese-operated as Japan had occupied Korea since 1910. A hat merchant named Yoro Araho established one of the first film companies called Choson Kinema Productions and produced the film Arirang in 1926, which is the film that marks the start of the golden era of silent film in Korea. The film was about a mentally unstable man who kills a wealthy landowner's son who is linked to the Japanese police. The film also had secret political messages and somehow it managed to slip past the Japanese censors. The film would go on to serve as inspiration for many young filmmakers who hoped to make films based in reality and as a resistance to the Japanese powers that be. Despite the ever-increasing popularity of local cinema, Japanese censorship and control kept it from reaching its full potential. The government required all foreign and domestic features to be submitted to a government censorship board for approval before being screened, and police were typically present at theaters for screenings. In the late 1920s, censorship became much more strict, and melodramas, costume dramas, and pro-Japanese films became more prominent. Several features were banned outright and subsequently destroyed. Bionces, basically the Korean version of Japan's Benshi, were the individuals that narrated the silent films for audiences. When the rare occurrence came that the Japanese authorities were not present at screenings, the narrators would inject satire and criticism of the Japanese occupation into the film narrative, giving the film a political subtext that would otherwise be invisible to Japanese government censors. It was actually not unusual for Bionsa to be paid more than the actors in the films they were narrating. Finding those political messages in films to share with the Korean people was crucial to early Korean cinema. One such example occurred with the importation of the American silent film Ben-Hur from 1927 into the country. The Japanese censors had failed to find anything that could be possibly inflammatory about the film, but the Bayonsa immediately recognized and alerted audiences to the obvious parallels between the conditions of the Jewish people portrayed on screen with those of the Korean people under Japanese colonial rule. The screening of the film nearly set off a riot. Sound films came to Korea in 1935 with the film Chun Yang Jeon, which is based on a popular Korean folktale that has been made over a dozen separate times. Reports say that the sound was terrible, but that the audience thoroughly enjoyed hearing their own language amplifying out of the speakers. Korean filmmakers also at this time found it difficult to raise the money they needed to produce Korean language sound films. 
To add insult to injury, their talking films faced much harder criticism than their silent films. It took nearly two years from the first sound pictures release for sound to become the standard in Korea. That same year, 1937, as you may well remember, was the year that Japan invaded China and the Korean filmmakers would soon come under increasing pressure to shoot films that supported the Japanese military and their war efforts. By 1942, Korean language films were banned from being made. However, the Japanese film studios still operating in Korea continued to make films with characters who spoke Korean until the end of World War II. Korea was one of Japan's first and most important centers of colonial film production. Japanese-sponsored shorts, newsreels, and feature films heavily promoted cultural assimilation to the Korean audiences. To oversee this, the Korean Colonial Cinema Unit was established to produce and distribute films that promoted Japanese culture and customs, as well as the benefits of modernization under the Japanese. Japanese film censors soon replaced all American and European films with Japanese ones as part of an attempt to culturally colonize Korea. Japanese films set in Korea appealed to audiences in Japan as a form of exotica as well. The film Suicide Troops of the Watchtower from 1943, for instance, was one of several propaganda films that promoted the Japanese occupation notion of Nisan Itai, or, quote, Japan and Korea as one body. In 1941, using the power they knew cinema could wield, the Japanese government had Shochiku Studios, along with the Japanese-sponsored Korean Military Information Division, co-produced the film You and I. The film was directed by a Korean man and promoted the quote-unquote volunteer enlistment of Koreans into the Imperial Japanese Army. Korea was finally liberated after the Japanese surrender during World War II and was eventually split into two occupied zones, a U.S.-controlled one and a Soviet-controlled one. The 38th parallel was the dividing line. Despite the initial plan of a unified Korea, which was laid out in the 1943 Cairo Declaration, escalating tensions between the Soviet Union and U.S. eventually led to the establishment of two separate governments. In 1948, the once singular country was split into North Korea and South Korea. As the Korea split, so does our episode's focus. For the rest of this episode, we're looking solely into the history of South Korean cinema. Unsurprisingly, the South Korean films following their liberation were super optimistic and focused widely on the theme of freedom. One of the most popular films of this era is literally called Hurrah! Freedom from 1946. That film was an ode to patriotism and unsurprisingly had strong anti-Japanese sentiments. Korean audiences loved it. 
This era of grand optimism was unfortunately short-lived as the Korean War kicked off in 1950 when North Korea invaded South Korea on June 25th. To vastly oversimplify, it was a conflict between the North and the South and their allies that led to an eventual military stalemate and the establishment of the Korean Demilitarization Zone, which remains in place to this day and cemented a divided Korea. During the war, the South Korean film industry came to a virtual standstill. Only 14 films were made during the war, and all of them are considered lost, as is the vast majority of Korea's early film footage. This was largely due to neglect, a lack of archival technology, and the destruction wrought during the Korean War. In fact, not a single feature film produced before 1934 in Korea survives in its complete form today. Following the armistice in 1953, South Korean President Sing Min Lee did away with the taxation on the film industry in an effort to revitalize the now heavily stagnated industry. Foreign aid included equipment and technology to produce higher quality films. By 1955, South Korea had entered their second golden age, even though the country was still dealing with excessive government censorship. But within five years, the industry had increased nearly tenfold, from 14 films made in 1954 to 111 made in 1959. Films made during this time were primarily melodramas, and yet another production of Chun Yang Jean in 1955 was produced and was so popular that it lured 10% of the population of Seoul to the cinemas. Unfortunately, this film is also considered lost. The late 1950s and early 1960s also saw the emergence of some of Korea's most talented directors. It didn't hurt that the money was pouring in from the cinemas. Also during this time, the censorship rules were lessened a little bit on South Korean filmmakers, and for the first time, and according to some historians, this allowed several of the best South Korean films ever made to be produced. One of the major talents to emerge from this era is Yoo Hyung-mok, who got a lot of attention with his 1961 film, Obelton. This film expresses the pain and despair brought on by the destruction of the war and Korea's industrial development. Yu's work focused mostly on marginalized members of society and is highly stylized and the most, like, very obviously intellectual for the period. Another figure from this time was director Shin Sang-ok, whom established himself as a major figure in Korean cinema with films such as A Flower in Hell from 1958 and his best-known film The House Guest and My Mother from 1961. The latter portrays the struggles of a young widow who falls in love with her tenant but cannot express her feelings due to a restrictive social code. In 1978, after having made some 80 films, Shin Sang-ok and his wife were quote-unquote kidnapped and taken to North Korea. After working in the North Korean film industry for eight years, he moved to Hollywood, where he would produce The Three Ninjas and its sequels under the name Simon Sheen. Like I said, the previous mentioned films were all able to be made because of the lessening of censorship laws. This did not last long. 
Army general turned politician Park Chung-hee became the acting and then president of South Korea in 1962. And shortly after that, the government control over the film industry increased substantially. Under the Motion Picture Law of 1962, a series of increasingly restrictive measures were enacted that limited imported films into the country. The new regulations also reduced the number of domestic film production companies from 71 to 16 within a year. Government censorship targeted obscenity, communism, and unpatriotic themes in films. The sudden restriction in films being allowed into the country meant that the South Korean filmmakers had to work fast to get films made to meet audience demand. In fact, on average, filmmakers were making six to eight films per year, many of which were shot in just weeks, very few weeks. The government's grip on its country's film industry reached its apex in the 70s under the authoritarian Yusin system, the fourth government of South Korea. The Korean Motion Picture Promotion Corporation was also created in 1973 to quote-unquote support and promote the South Korean film industry while maintaining control over the film industry as a whole. According to the 1981 International Film Guide, quote, no country has a stricter code of film censorship than South Korea, with the possible exception of the North Koreans and some other communist bloc countries. So, you know, you can create art as long as it's on their terms. Under the new rules, only filmmakers whom had previously made quote-unquote ideologically sound films and who were considered loyal to the government were allowed to make new films. Members of the film industry who had tried to bypass censorship laws in any way were typically blacklisted and sometimes imprisoned. But what the government did like making was propaganda-laden movies or policy films that were produced extensively in the 1970s and were incredibly unpopular. Audiences preferred the socially aware films of the 50s and 60s and did not like the policy films. In addition to the extensive government interference, like nearly every filmmaker in the world during this era, South Korean filmmakers began losing their audiences to television and movie theater attendance dropped by over 60% from 1969 to 1979. The South Korean film industry would not recover until the 1990s. However, films that were popular among audiences during this era included Hey Days from 1975 and Winter Woman from 1977. Both were box office hits directed by Kim Ho-sun. These films were classified as hostess films, which are movies about sex workers and women whom work in bars. Despite their sexual content, the government allowed these films to be released, and the genre was extremely popular during the 70s and 80s. After 20 years of extreme censorship, the government relented its censorship laws, and once again, the Korean film industry began to thrive. In the 1980s, the South Korean government finally began to relax its grip on their film industry once more. 
The Motion Picture Law of 1984 finally allowed independent filmmakers to begin producing films without fear of getting in trouble from the government. Independent productions, which had been illegal, were also permitted once more under certain circumstances. The government also repealed laws which had kept the film industry limited to a handful of bigger companies. A 1986 revision allowed more films to be imported into South Korea as well. Military leader Ro Tae-woo enacted a new constitution in 1988, which led to further easing of political censorship. One early film to take advantage of all of this was Park Kwang Soo's Chilsu and Mansu from 1988, which even features a street demonstration in its final scene. All of these things led to a surge of new directorial talent entering the industry, and these directors' new approaches to the art of filmmaking would have a major effect on Korean cinema and eventually the world. The films were also able to be seen by a wider international audience, giving Korea a long overdue place on the world stage. In 1988, the South Korean government lifted all restrictions on foreign films and American film companies began to set up offices in South Korea. In order for domestic films to compete with the influx of Hollywood types, the government once again enforced a screen quota that required movie theaters to show domestic films for at least 146 days per year. Despite this quota being in place, however, the market share of domestic films was only about 16% in 1993. The South Korean film industry was once again shifted in 1992 with Kim Wee Sok's hit film Marriage Story, which was released by Samsung and kicked off the very popular sex war comedy genre. Yes, that's a thing. It was the first South Korean movie to be released by business conglomerates known as Chaebol, which are Korean family-run conglomerates, and it paved the way for other Chaebols to enter the film industry as well. The companies soon began using an integrated system of financing, producing, and distributing films in a very similar manner to the studio system of Hollywood in the 1930s. This was not a long relationship for most Chaebols, as 1997 saw the Asian financial crisis, leading to many of them lessening their involvement in the industry. The prior involvement they had had, however, had already laid the groundwork for a renaissance in South Korean filmmaking by supporting young directors and introducing good business practices into the industry. New Korean cinema, as it came to be called, is noted for its highly polished blockbuster films and creative genre films, which began to emerge in the late 90s and early 2000s. One of the first of these blockbusters was Shiri from 1999, which is a film about a North Korean spy in Seoul. It was the first film in South Korean history to sell more than 2 million tickets in Seoul alone. South Korean cinema finally saw domestic box office success, exceeding that of Hollywood films in the late 1990s, largely due to the screen quota laws. But this was about to change. As a prerequisite for negotiations with the U.S. for a free trade agreement, the Korean government cut its annual screen quota for domestic films from 146 days to 73, allowing far more outside films to reach Korean screens. This was met with derision from the Korean filmmakers, and in February 2006, industry workers responded to the reduction by staging mass rallies in protest. 
Despite the protest, though, South Korean cinema was in the middle of a huge surge as it began attracting extensive international attention in the 2000s. This was due in part to filmmaker Park Chan-wook, whose movie Old Boy won a major prize at the 2004 Cannes Film Festival. It was praised by several big-name American directors, including Spike Lee, whom directed the English-language remake of the same name in 2013. The name you're probably familiar with, if you're familiar with anything revolving around Korean cinema before today, is Bong Joon-ho. His films The Host from 2006 and Snowpiercer from 2013, the latter of which was shot in English, are two of the highest grossing films of all time in South Korea and were also met with international critical acclaim. Snowpiercer has also been adapted into a television show in the United States. But his big claim to fame nowadays occurred in 2019, when Bong Joon-ho's Parasite became the first film from South Korea to win the prestigious Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Then, at the 92nd Academy Awards, Parasite not only became the first Korean film to receive any level of Oscars recognition, and not only that, but had received six nominations. Of the six it was nominated for, it won four that night. Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best International Feature Film, and of course, the biggest prize of the night, Best Picture. With Parasite's Best Picture win, the film became the first film, not primarily in English, ever to win the Oscar for Best Picture. In Korea, the response in the media was primarily celebratory. Every major news outlet in the country bore the news of Parasite's big night, praising director Bong Joon-ho and celebrating how Korean cinema is, quote, finally standing on the top of the world. Even the president of South Korea personally thanked the members of the film for, quote, instilling pride and courage in our people. Korean cinema has had to reckon with Japanese colonization, a national division, a civil war, authoritarian military governments, strict censorship, and restrictive regulations. It took 90 years for the Korean film industry to finally be released from its government's strict control and begin to reach its full potential. Hopefully, Korean cinema will be allowed to continue to thrive and never have to face the conflicts it has in the past. Hi, everybody. I really like to thank Director Bong. Thank you. Thank you for being you. And I like everything about him. His smile, his crazy hair, the way he talks, the way he walks, and especially the way he directs. <laughs> and what I really like about him is his sense of humor, and the fact is he can be really making fun of himself, and he never takes himself seriously. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank everybody who's been supporting Parasite and who's been working with Parasite and who's been loving Parasite. And I'd like to thank my brother who's been always supporting our building our dreams, even when it looked impossible dream. Thank you, Jay. I want to thank my brother, Jay. And especially, I really, really, really want to thank our Korean film audience, our moviegoers, who's been really supporting all our movies and never hesitated 
to give a straightforward opinion on what they feel like their movies. <laughs> and that made us really never be able to be complacent and keep pushing the directors, the creators, keep pushing the envelopes. And without you, our Korean film audience, we are not here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week. If you want to check out any of the films I mentioned this week, there's a link in the show notes that has a lot of the old ones. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're covering the histories of some cult classic films. Next week, we're starting with the Rocky Horror Picture Show if you want to watch it in advance. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.